Hey everyone, welcome to Bible Discoveries, the weekend show where, as always, we discuss big topics as they pop up while we're reading through the Bible this year, and we also aim to discuss and answer some of your questions as well. Matlock. Yes. We've reached a lot of the minor prophets. Yes, a lot of the minor prophets, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. So we're, we're cruising through it. So why don't you tell us what our assigned reading was this week and so, maybe a preview of some of the stuff we're going to talk about. All right, sure. That's all your right. job right now. Is that my job? <laughs> right now, right, yes. I've been told, voluntold. All right, so <laughs> we're dealing with Amos 1 to Nahum 3. Now, we have no questions on Nahum today. Okay. All questions are pertaining to Micah, Jonah, right? A lot on Amos. We have some questions pertaining to Edom. Like, what was going on there? They were said they're going to be yes. destroyed. Were they? Was it fulfilled, the prophecies? Things of those natures. Yes. Dealing with questions in the minor prophets. We have a lot of minor prophets that we went over. So, Corey, and our big question. Our big question. Forgot. Last week we didn't have a big question. I almost forgot. This week's big question, okay, is actually a viewer question. Okay. Someone we actually don't know. It's anonymous. They were able to submit. I don't know how it's anonymous. An anonymous question. I, I have no clue probably how it's anonymous. Email. Probably, probably but they email. would have their email. I have no clue how it's anonymous. Probably it's anonymous. through email because... Through Rebecca sure. and Rachel, our hello of first time ever. Got it's anonymous. Fine. Yeah, it's fine. Okay, so the question is: <laughs> You can send us anonymous questions by by. Yes, it is. I yeah. mean, you may not be well, fully anonymous, anonymous to the ladies in the office, but once they send well, it, what through, I'm saying like, is, we make them anonymous. We take off the last names, yeah. right? But in this case, it's truly anonymous. Truly anonymous. All right. What Intriguing. Is, yeah. What is the best Bible? Uh, sorry. What is the best translation of the Bible? Is it okay to use the NLT? Now, because it's the big question. Yeah. It's going to be mainly about what's the best Bible translation, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So we'll talk about that. But Permission maybe granted or maybe not granted okay, yeah. for so, you to read the end. That's right. All <laughs> we'll, right. We'll find out. <laughs> but start things off. I'm clearly still sick today. I'm, st- I'm continuing this, this cold. And the cold. The cold. I so I, yeah, post-nasal drip, whatever you want to call it. All this stuff that's terrible. Anyway, so I'm going to be coughing. So just bear with me. So you're up, Corey. You're apologizing in advance. I'm apologizing in advance for my... I'm Sickness. up. Okay. You're up, Corey. I'm going to ask you the first question. Okay. <laughs> Please this pertains do. pertains to Amos. I'm, I'm going there. I'm chapters going there. 1 and 2. Why does Amos keep repeating for three transgressions and for four? Right. Because he does, he, yeah, he That's says it. That's the ESV it, version of translating that. Other translations do it a little bit differently. Well, it's very similar. It's very similar. Yes, I mean, but for it's three, like, for oh. example, the Amos one verse three says, "Thus says the Lord: For three transgressions of Damascus and for four, I will not revoke the punishment." Right. Right, and it goes on, and and yeah. So why? For three transgressions of the Ammonites and for four, right. I will not revoke the punishment. Okay, so this is a poetic device. It's a literary device, and from my understanding, I believe what scholars who know the language, who know Hebrew, what they say about it is that this is supposed to give us the concept of completion and then multiplication. So three being a sense of like a true plural. Um, So there's multiple sins. And then by adding a fourth, you're multiplying the multiplicity of sins. So it's just this, this sense of punishment is absolutely coming. You have many, many sins, not just a plurality of sins as represented by three, but then a multiplication of that by adding a a number four to it. So your your sins are filled full and your punishment is sure. It's going to happen. And so, I mean, when you read Amos, 
it's on seven nations and Jerusalem as well. So also on the nation of Judah, judgment is assured at this point. Right. So yeah, that's what I would say. That's what I, that's my current understanding of it is that it's a way to symbolize wholeness, um, a multiplication of sin, um, and sure judgment. Okay, That's cool. what I would say. Yes. I think that's fine. Yeah, once again, sometimes numerology and all these different things come into play, but in this case, it's not even dealing with... Uh, it's, it's a literary device yeah, exactly. where you've got three representing a, like a, a whole complete plural. I think that makes the most sense. And then four, it's a multiplication of the sins because it's always in the negative sense. Right. It's always for three sins and, and for four. Right. So it's really showing you this completeness of sin. Right. Cool. Yeah. I think that's pretty good. I think you answered Great. pretty well. I don't see awesome. a reason to chime in and add more. It's pretty basic. <laughs> All yeah. right. Next question, Corey. Amos 8, verse 7. I'm going there. What is the pride of Jacob? Is it Jacob's pride? <laughs> or... Is the pride of Jacob <laughs> Jacob's pride? No. Okay, so, right. so Jacob at this point, it's not the person Jacob. It's the <coughs> people descendant from Jacob. So, and of course, Jacob's other name is Israel, right? So this is God's people. These are the descendants of Jacob, both represented in northern Israel and southern Judah. So, verse 7, the Lord has sworn by the pride of Jacob, surely I will never forget any of their deeds. Um, So, Sorry, I just, I got distracted by the next okay. verse there because it's talking about Egypt and the Nile, which is very cool. But um, this can just literally mean because the people are so proud, they're yes. so prideful that they're, they're self-idolizing, which is certainly true. Yes. When you read the rest of Amos, this is certainly true. When you read the contemporaries of Amos and earlier prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah as well, you can certainly see that the people of God had become very prideful and very arrogant. That was a constant. So by God saying, I swear by that, I swear by your idolatrous attitude that this is going to happen. That is certainly very fitting. I think it's also interesting to go back to Amos chapter 6, where God says, In verse 8, the Lord God has sworn by himself, declares the Lord, the God of hosts. I abhor the pride of Jacob and hate his strongholds. I will deliver up the city and all that is in it. So you have the the concept of the pride (coughs) of Jacob being more fleshed out. And this concept of Jacob now, the country, the people, They have built up the country in a way that they are now very proud of. And they are very assured in the fact that they have strongholds. They have walled cities. I mean, when you look at Jerusalem, if we're Samaria, if we're looking at northern Israel, and Jerusalem, if we're looking at southern Judah, um, they have built up (coughs) these two capital cities, both religious centers in their own right, albeit different religious centers. Um, we see Jeremiah referring to, you know, the people of Judah trusting in, being proud of the temple in Jerusalem specifically. And he says, look to Shiloh. If God destroyed Shiloh where the tent tabernacle was because the people had begun to trust in the tent tabernacle, he's certainly not going to spare Jerusalem in the temple. Destruction is coming. So I, so... There's the pride of Jacob 
more generally in that it certainly is true that there's this attitude of pride and idolatry and apostasy going on right. and self-worship um, in terms of the people get to decide what's right and wrong. The people get to decide how they're going to worship and who they're going to worship rather than God decides as their covenant king, right? So, so pride in that sense. <coughs> and then when you reference back to Amos chapter six, there's pride in a specific sense as well of their built up cities, of their strongholds, of their fortifications, foremost of which would have been Samaria and Jerusalem. Right. So those are the two answers. Yeah, I think that's good. And like you're saying, it's quite literal because they did, even by the Second Temple period, like the temple was like basically more important than God. Like there's a lot of people who, yep. right? Like yep. the temple was the most important thing. And that was like, that's why when God destroyed it, it was like a form of judgment because um, they treated the temple as more important than God, as if it was God basically. This is like, and so it's basically they were treating themselves as God because that's where they collected to get together to do the festivals. Yeah, absolutely. Because, because um, so... Um, not as much in the New Testament, but absolutely in the Old Testament, they were also, I mean, we, we see in Ezekiel, they were also, and in Kings and Chronicles, they were also incorporating idolatrous worship in the worship of the temple as well. Right. So they were engaged in syncretism, which they were they were allying other pagan gods with the God of the Bible as well. Right, right, right. Right, less so in the New Testament, but still transgressions going on in terms of idolization of the temple and inappropriate use of the temple. Right. We see with the the casting out of the money changers and things of that nature. That's good. Yeah. Corey, I'll get you with one more. Sure. You're sparing me from having to speak. Much, <laughs> I'm great. here for you, Matlock. So we're moving on to Obadiah. Obadiah chapter one. Yeah. I guess this is only one chapter. But, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. Verses it's 18 to 20. Obadiah. Uh, were Obadiah's prophecies against Edom fulfilled? And if so, when? Yeah, so the, the whole book of Obadiah is against Edom, isn't it? It's yes. a vision that Obadiah has against Edom. Uh, 18 to 20 specifically. The house of Jacob shall be a fire, the house of Joseph a flame, <coughs> the house of Esau stubble. They shall burn them and consume them, and there shall be no survivor for the house of Esau, for the Lord has spoken. Okay, so... Generally speaking, in Obadiah, this is this is a prophecy, an indictment of Edom's bad behavior, and a prophecy that Edom is going to get their comeuppance. They are going to be judged for this bad behavior. And it's not just here in Obadiah that Edom is spoken of. Edom is spoken against a lot. And I did a um, on the day specifically, if you have the Bible guide, uh, on the on the specific day that we read Obadiah, um, I go through all of the um, prophecies against Edom on the Bible Discovery Daily Program. So if you have a Bible guide, you can find it which day that was, and you can jump over if you're interested in looking at that segment. Um, but there's many, many areas in Scripture like six or seven that have prophecies specifically against Edom, mainly for attacking um, the nation of Judah when they were down. So when the Babylonians began to invade, Edom would go in and raid. Um, there, there's Jewish tradition that even says that there were Edomites a part of the Babylonian army when they went in and they finally destroyed the temple in 586 BC, um, which certainly would go with, you know, with um, 
the indictments against him in the Bible, though it's not specifically uh, said, but definitely that that they were that they were a part of it. They were a part of that destruction. But in terms of when were the prophecies against Edom fulfilled, we know um, through archaeology <coughs> that the nation of Edom was destroyed. There's destruction levels at several sites um, in Edom, but the ba- several of the Babylonian chronicles claim that Babylon conquered the land of Edom, specifically Nabonidus. So if you look at like the Nabonidus Chronicle, um, you'll see, okay, so Nabonidus, he took over, he is not in the line of Nebuchadnezzar. Remember Nebuchadnezzar II, who's in the Bible, he is the king of Babylon that is responsible for destroying Jerusalem and the temple and taking everybody captive. He shows up in Daniel as an an interesting main character. But Nebuchadnezzar's son was on the throne for a little bit, um, but the kingdom was ultimately taken from him in a coup and Nabonidus becomes king, okay? So Nabonidus rules from about 556 till the end of the Babylonian Empire. It's a short-lived Neo-Babylonian Empire. Uh, He he has his son Belshazzar as co-regent for a while because Nabonidus, he's this very interesting, weird character. He goes to the desert oasis of, uh, I can't, it starts with a T. It's escaping me right now. Something like Taima or something like that. And he lives there for 10 years and no one knows why. He just leaves and lives there for 10 years and he leaves Belshazzar at home. And that's where we get Daniel is, you know, the writing on the wall and all of that is with Belshazzar. That's who that is. Okay, so on Nabonidus's way to that desert oasis, it's believed that he conquered Edom. And this uh, this claim in the Nabonidus Chronicle, and I think there's about three other, three other um, Babylonian records that are surviving that, that talk about this. But if you go to the site of Sela today, as Sela, they, which was an Edomite stronghold in the <coughs> desert, uh, just south of Judah, it was destroyed by Nabonidus. And we know because he carved a huge relief, a huge scene in the side of a cliff there that has his image on it. And there's very like scantily surviving text. Uh, It's been partially reconstructed, but it's definitely Nabonidus because no other Babylonian king, he was a very peculiar king in the gods that he chose to in how he chose to portray himself and in the gods that he chose to portray with himself. And it's him. Like there's, there, you can compare it. It has to be Nabonidus. He's wearing the Nabonidus crown. He's worshiping the Nabonidus gods. And part, part of his name is surviving as well, but he claims to have conquered Edom as well. And so all of that lines up with Edom was destroyed by Babylon shortly after the time of Obadiah. In 553 BC. You're, oh, you remember me saying that. That's right. Before this, I was looking and I was trying to remember the date. When do yeah. scholars date this to? They generally they generally date the destruction of Escila and Edom by Nabonidus in 553 BC, three years after he became king of the Neo-Babylonian Empire. There is an argument uh, that I read recently. It's not a recent argument. It was um, written in a paper in 2007 by Bradley Crowell. Uh, but he believes it can be more accurately dated to the fifth year of Nabonidus in 551 BC. So 553 to 551 BC, Edom was destroyed largely <coughs> by the Neo-Babylonian Empire. 
So it came to pass. Well, I think you answered the questions. I know I went I into it. I kind of nerded out no, a little bit good. too much on the on the Nabonidus one, but I, yeah. I find Neo-Babylonian history so interesting because it's such a short period of time and it interacts so much with the Bible and the right. biblical timeline that I think it's interesting. And Nabonidus is a strange guy. If you go back and you look at these records, he is a weird guy. I mean, could you be normal and be the king of the Neo-Babylonian Empire? Because the rest of them don't seem yeah. that normal either. If well, you read about Nebuchadnezzar. Thing, after you like take over someone, you're like, okay, well, let's just write this down in this mountain so that everyone who passes by sees this. That's amazing <laughs> yeah, thing to do. It's yeah. a thing, isn't Rather it? Write down the script. No, write on the mountain there. Yeah, let's go do Carve that. Carve it in that mountain <laughs> so everyone who tries to come up these ancient steps will see. Yeah, that's amazing. Amazing. Okay, Malik, I'm sure. going to flip the script here on you now. Sure. I'm going to pass it on to you for a while. I've All spoken right. enough. Jonah. Jonah, right. question for yeah. you. I know you like Jonah. I love Jonah. You do. Okay, Jonah's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. You do. Okay, Jonah chapter two. Viewer question. Yeah. Was Jonah really eaten by a big fish or was it a whale? And if I don't believe the story was real, is that a problem? Right. Okay, so a couple things to start off there. Um, now... A big fish or a whale, like at this point, would the ancients be calling a fish a whale? It's like, yes, they're not, they don't have any like speciations or textiles. They're not boiling the, the animal world down. In fact, in the Maccabees, when it references this, it actually calls Jonah, it refers to Jonah being eaten by a sea beast. So they were just like, okay, it doesn't necessarily yeah. mean a fish in the traditional way that we think of fish. Okay, so it's like they don't have a, like a hard taxonomy of the, the animal kingdom. Uh, so yeah, could have been a whale. Yeah, maybe. Now, a lot of people argue that, well, whales don't go in that area. It's like, okay, well. They may have, though. They, they may have. So there's all this speculation about what could and could not have been. It's like, do, do whales' migration, migration patterns change? Yes. So let's just pause for a moment. Could have been a whale. Yes. Could have been a giant fish. The Mediterranean fish. Sea is a big place. It is. Could have been a giant fish. Perhaps. Was it a sea beast, as Maccabee said? Perhaps. I what don't know. What is a sea beast other than a giant fish capable of swallowing That's right. Amanda? Here's what we know, though. It I mean, have, in the classic, let's be real. If we can call a lion a beast, right. why can't we call well, a fish a beast? I think some what, fish get huge. I think what gets, it's true. What gets some people is when you look at these old, like, beautiful like icons and these paintings, Yeah. that they have like Jonah in a fish, but it's like he perfectly fits in this belly, like, and the fish is not much bigger than Jonah. Sure. And you're like, okay, well, that's not possible because. But at, artistic imaginations but, aren't. And also, you're trying the to the same as it's the scripture, also, and they're not the same as reality. Exactly, and remember, like those old paintings, those old drawings are trying to capture theology in paint yes, form. So the concepts. Exactly, so. concepts, meanings, deeper meanings within yeah. the text, and so they're not worried about. Okay, well, Jonah couldn't actually fit inside there. They're not, they're not going to draw a giant blue whale, right? Take up like the, so much canvas just to be like, oh, look, this this scientifically makes sense. They're just not concerned about that, especially with that stuff. So visually speaking, yeah, so it's some sort of big, big sea creature that ate him. Um, whatever that creature was, I'm not too particular. No, the question is, and if I don't believe the story, what, is that a problem? Okay, let's get to the bigger point of the question. Um, the, the story of Jonah's actually really important to believe. I've come to that conclusion. Um, I know some people in the past have been like, well, if I don't believe in Jonah, how does this affect anything? Well, the reason why it's important is because Jesus Christ specifically says uh, about, ju about judgment that those in Nineveh who repented at the preaching of Jonah will rise up and condemn this generation, the, the, the generation of the Pharisees and Sadducees, uh, will condemn it um, 
I have spoken this, says Jesus. So the idea there is that um, Nineveh repent, truly repented at the preaching of Jonah. That has to be true because they're going to become up. God's going to raise them up and use them as an example to show that that generation who saw the Messiah, right? They're going to use them as, as, a, as a tool or an example of why they repented, but they didn't, even though they saw the Messiah face to face. So that's really important. Um, so yes, something there's the story itself, the whole like the, the the main point of the story is true. If you're gonna be like, well, I don't believe Jonah got eaten by a fish, okay, that's a different part of the story. I think there's a good argument you can make for the for the I believe he did. Okay, so once again, I, I believe he did. But I think you can make an argument that at the time it is believed, no, it's this is this is more um uh, you couldn't not fringe, but on the side of history, because we don't know for sure if Nineveh worshipped Dagon. But there's been a, a lot of examples in uh, at, at you know Nineveh was the capital city of Assyria in that area that Dagon was worshipped in general. What, whether he was the main god, I don't know. But he was the god of provision. He was the god of the sea. He had his half of his body's upper torso. He looked like a merman. Half his body was human. The other bot but was a fish. The bottom half, and. Uh, the point of Dagon, which you might remember from like um, uh, first, first Samuel, stuff like that, is that he was the god of provision, god of life. He sustained the crops. He, he was a god of the, the ocean. So but because he was a fish man, if Jonah was spit out of, of, this, of a fish, which Dagon has control over, basically, it's Dagon's territory, he would have way more clout and uh, power in what he means going to Nineveh. Um, Largely because they're worshiping Dagon, right? If the, if the archaeology is there, is sound. So if that's the case, then the uh, the Nineveh, even though you know, what is it? He only says like, "Repent, or you'll be destroyed." I think there's only like five Hebrew words or something that he says. Uh, but that's the whole. The Jonah doesn't get into. He probably said more, but the, the the book of Jonah doesn't say what else he said. But either way, he'd have to have a lot of power behind his words for all the kings and for them to force their animals, everyone to wear sackcloth and ashes and to repent in dust and ashes. So my point in saying that is that, again, uh, is it a big deal if you don't believe the whole story? Yes, I think it's a big deal. I think saying the story is fictional, which I've heard people try and do, I think it's dangerous because Christ says these people are going to rise up and, and condemn as an as a example of condemnation against the Pharisees and Sadducees. <laughs> but, you know, and in terms of not believing the fish part, well... Okay, I think it's, there's a, <laughs> again, I believe it's real, but if you wanted to isolate, oh, this part's not real, but this part, the whole story, you know, it has to be real. I think that's silly. But if you're going to think on those terms, I think there's enough present to say that God was doing this miraculous event for a good reason. And God was showing that he had power over their own God, who's Dagon, and stuff like that. So that's my really, I know it's kind of, I kind of ranted there a bit. I was kind of bouncing back. I'm not feeling too well. But and I think fun I, fact. Go ahead. Fun fact is that we do know something else that Jonah prophesied. All right, go ahead. So if we go to 2 Kings chapter 14. Um, oh, right. We know that Jonah prophesied to the king of Israel, Jeroboam II, who was on the throne during the reign of Uzziah in Judah and Jerusalem, which tells us some interesting things. 
but we know that Jonah prophesied about the reign of Jeroboam II, king of Israel, that Jeroboam would successfully restore the borders of Israel. Yes. And we learned, and we know that it's the same Jonah, because in 2 Kings 14, it says, Jerobo- he, Jeroboam, restored the border of Israel from Lebo Hamath as far as the Sea of the Arabah, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke by his servant, Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet who was from Gath Hefer. So we know it's the same guy yes, for sure, that yeah. stars in Jonah. And just out of interest, if Jonah gave that prophecy during the reign of Jeroboam II, so we're, we're assuming that Jonah didn't give it in an earlier reign and then he died. We're assuming right. that he gave it to Jeroboam, that he would restore the borders there. If he did that, that places him as a contemporary <coughs> prophet with Hosea and Amos and even Isaiah. So right. Isaiah was alive during the reign of Jeroboam too, because that coincides with the reign of Uzziah, but he may have not received um, any prophetic words to the nation until the day that Uzziah died, as we see right. in Isaiah. So, but it's interesting that Jonah may have been a contemporary. Uh, he was a contemporary, yes. may have been a contemporary if he, it, again, assuming he prophesied to Jeroboam that Jeroboam was going to restore the boundaries yes. and not earlier, that places him in the lifetime of Hosea, Amos, and Isaiah. Yeah, and there is, I will say this, yeah, he's totally a real prophet too. Yeah, he's yeah. a real person. He's, he's a real prophet. The question, yeah. I guess, is did is this episode satire or is it true? Oh, okay, you're getting, okay. If you want to dig into that a little but bit. I, but I think that that's where people go because they hear that another interpretation of, jo- of the book of Jonah is that it's satirical, that right. it's meant to be kind of like this tongue-in-cheek comedy that, that gives right. theological truths kind of in a biting way. And then they go, oh, I don't, that's interesting because then I don't have to believe this weird account. Right. Okay. Okay. So I wrote an article on this. You did. I did. And I will post in the link below and I encourage you to read it on the website because it is definitely. It's worth thinking about. It's worth thinking about, but it's definitely not. And I. <laughs> that's the, what I mean. It's the, worth the people, thinking about. Yeah. The, because the, the argument that goes forth that it's satirical paints Jonah as a false prophet. Yes, it does. And Which we can see from 2 Kings 14, he was not. Exactly. He was delivering legitimate Jesus words, words they were from God. repented at the preaching of Jonah. Yeah. They weren't like, <laughs> right? This, and also, yeah. if the, suppose the story's not real, okay? Suppose it's all just made up just to tell a, a fun story about these certain things, okay? Um, like, it, suppose Jesus is speaking hyperbole. Like, oh, like, were they going to... Pr- what are we going to make Jonah out to be? Like, is it like a King Arthur type thing where it's like, oh, well, it's, it's it's legend. It's not really real. Or is it like a satirical thing where it's like, oh, it's completely made up and it's totally a comedy and you should laugh at it. In both those situations where it's like, it's slightly not history and it's slightly not real and in the comedy situation where it's like, it's just designed to make you laugh kind of thing or whatever. Um, both of them fall flat because of Jesus' prophetic words. They just fall completely flat. Um and so because of that, like, like if, if we, I don't want to get too deep into this, but if Jonah isn't real, like when Christ says these people will rise up and condemn, right, and condemn this generation because they preached the, at the uh, repentance, they repented at Jonah preaching, like, 
Yeah, that's a whole other thing, because that, that, that's not the only time that Christ uses Jonah as an exemplar either. Yes. Right? He, I will he, be in the belly of the whale for three days, three nights. Yes. Yeah, uh, yeah he, he says no sign will Heart be given this generation except the sign of the prophet Jonah. That's right. There's a whole bunch of times he references them. Yeah. Now, people are uncomfortable with someone getting eaten by a fish. Yeah. Which, great. I actually saw a video recently of someone getting eaten by a fish. <laughs> but it was, he, was, he was eaten by, a, what's it called, a whale shark. That he was spit out within like five minutes, but it's pretty funny. Anyways. Um, it was the second time getting eaten by the whale shark. Anyways, it's totally off topic. Second he got eaten twice. By How? It's a, anyways, That's strange. Okay. Yeah, it was, it was okay. very bizarre. <laughs> anyways, but the, anyways, there's cases in history of people being eaten by whales. Sure. Yes, it just, it happens. Anyways, really funny. But I don't think you could make a case that Jonah is a false prophet because what they try to do is there with the him is that, oh, Jonah, when he spoke in Second Kings, right? Yeah. That didn't actually come true. And they try to argue that. It did come true. He, it, that's the point of Second Kings 14. I know, but they try to they argue. They said he did this according to the word that God had given through the prophet it, Jonah, son okay, of Ammon. So the, the Bible Project specifically argue, and this is a bad, and I'm sorry. They don't, not all their content's bad, but this, this no, one No, some of their content's really great. You're right. This one is just really bad. They try to argue that there it didn't come true because even though he spoke these words, God reverses it and doesn't allow it to happen. And then Amos comes against it and tells... So it was a why it's not going to happen. It's a whole, like I said, read the article. It's actually really bad. So they don't, people don't say that Jonah is a false prophet. They just give them like all of the definitions of what a false sure. prophet is. They just give them all the, all the meanings for what, what, what makes sure. someone a false prophet without yeah. saying, oh, he's a false prophet. So that's what they do. Um, but it doesn't work. Like it did come true. Right. Yeah. And then also there's conditional prophecies. When someone says, do this, right. And all right. So that you, you'll be spared. If you don't do it, you won't be spared. But if you do do it, you will be spared. So it's just conditional, mm-hmm. right? So it's, that's like most things. Mm-hmm. That's the same thing with these. Anyways, <laughs> we don't need to get too much into no, it. No, read the article, comment on the article. You'll comment back I'll comment as you back. do. I'll comment back. As that's right. you do. All right. All right, Matlock, Micah 7, sure. verse 19, which says, He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. So this is, I I started reading in the middle of a call out to God, um, which begins, who is like you, God, pardoning, pardoning iniquities and passing over transgression for the remnant of its inheritance. So the question specifically here is about Micah 7, verse 19. What does it mean that God will cast our sins into the depths of the right. sea? So obviously, this can't be a literal sea. Like, they can't be like a, a, a sea you're swimming in like right now. You can't go to the beach. Well, the concept uh, can uh, be literal, but... Well, okay, hold on. Okay, you can have a spiritual reality. But I'm talking about, okay, when I say, I should have said physical. You can't make this... You can't cast out sins into like the ocean. Right. God is, okay, Jesus, so Jesus isn't going to come grab our heart like bum, 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 and chuck it in the sea. Uh, Obviously. So we're saying, what does the sea mean? (laughs) Sure. I'm like, what's happening here? I thought you were challenging. I was like, why are we challenging? This is so obvious. I just need to make sure this is clear. (laughs) So obvious that this is not an actual, like, physical ocean. It's symbolic. It's symbolic. So what does the symbology of the sea mean? The depth of the sea. Okay. We've talked about this before. So the sea represents Hades or Sheol, the depths of the world, right? So you have this idea that when we see this in Revelation, when God's going to take our sins and put them 
into the depth, like kill them basically, put them in with yeah, death. And where then, no one can reach, where no one can see, where it can't possibly come back. That's right. Practically speaking, exactly. It's into the the the, the deep depths of, yeah. of all things. Then at the end, in Revelation, I'm going to read verse 14, chapter 20, verse 14. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake, uh, the lake of fire. So you have here is that all your forget all your sins over that are thrown to the depth of the sea. Yeah. And then it says later in Revelation that there is no more sea. Well, why? Because Hades, death, Sheol, the sea, mm -hmm. is then thrown into the lake of fire, the second death. Mm -hmm. So basically it's destroyed. Yeah. So all your sins, all the sinners who love to sin and, and have become sin themselves, okay, are thrown into this pit, this this sea, right? This death themselves, right? And that is destroyed. That is the idea. That gets tossed into the lake of fire. That is the second death. So I think that's pretty much it. C is a parallel with Hades. Yeah. It's a parallel with Sheol, which is death, right? It's it's that parallel. So it's being thrown into death to be destroyed. Yes. Right. And, and even when you think practically, I mean, it's it's not as if the ancient people could reach the bottom of the sea. It's not as if we as modern people can reach the bottom of the sea. Like technologically, we still can't get there. Maybe one day... They'll figure out a way to get to the very depths of the oceans, but we still can't get there, which I think is really interesting. There's too much pressure. That's right. Right? It's still, it still can't be done. So it's still such a, an apt and amazing symbol that God is going to put our sin somewhere completely untouchable, completely unknowable, so far removed from us, it couldn't possibly come back. We couldn't possibly That's right. get it. Yes. Fabulous. Awesome. Love this kind of symbolism. Right. That's good. Yeah. Corey, I'll ask you the big question. The big question. All right. We're here we pretty early. We reached it. No, that's okay. This is good. This is good. Ready? Yeah. Okay. What is the best Bible translation? And for this person specifically, whoever Anonymous is, is it okay to use the NLT? The New Living Translation? New Living Translation. Yeah, which I've never read, but hey. I have read it. I yeah. remember it very fondly. Um, the... I earned my first, okay, my first Bible was actually given to me by, by my Nana and Papa, my maternal grandparents. Um, and I believe it was when I was dedicated as, as, a, as a baby. And it was just this little New King James Version Precious Moments Bible that I, I would read every once in a while as I was growing up. But I remember my first real study Bible that I read through cover to cover, I earned when I was 11 or 12. I can't remember if I was 11 or 12, but I earned it. My dad was running the was running a youth group for the church we were going to at the time, the junior high youth group. And I had snuck, I had managed to like squeeze my way into that youth group, even though I was a little bit too young because my older brother went. But my dad was running it, so I ended up squeezing myself into it. We had to memorize the Ten Commandments. And if we memorized the Ten Commandments, the full Ten Commandments, then um, dad would give us a translation, uh, would give us a copy of the study Bible. And the study Bible that he gave me was the New Living Translation, and it was a study Bible. And I read that thing cover to cover, and it was amazing. It was awesome. It really, really helped me. So I am, I am okay with the New Living Translation. Right. It is more thought for thought, um, so yeah. it's not as literal of a translation. Um, but it, it really helps if you. In my experience, it really helps if you've never read the Bible before, and it depends on the kind of reader that you are and your age and everything. Right. Um, so I don't think like you have to be young to read the New Living Translation. I know plenty of middle-aged and older people who read the New Living Translation as well. But in my experience, it was a very good 
introduction Bible into the scriptures. And it it's very thought-provoking to this day. Sometimes I'll I'll hear, I don't read it often now, but right. I'll hear someone quote a, a Bible verse uh, or passage from the New Living Translation. It, it takes me, I take a step back because it's not the translation that I'm used to using right now and I think about it. So right. it's a very good thing. I'm not faithful to one translation of the Bible. Um, I use, the ones that I use the most, I would say are NIV, ESV, NKJV. I would say those three are the top ones that I currently use. And I go back right. and forth between them because like we're not reading in the original language, we're reading in English and each translation tries to stay faithful to the original, but they do it in a slightly different way, right? And, and if you speak two languages, which I don't fluently, I got close with French, Canadian over here. I got real close, but, but I'm not quite fluent. But you know, if you speak more than one language, you know that there's not like a one-for-one -one way of translating. Sometimes you have to translate thought for thought. So that's what our English tr translations aim to do. So I wouldn't say that there is one that is like upheld on this pedestal as the best English translation. Yeah. But, but um, Yeah, you can't have a the best. You can have like ones that are, depends what you're using it for. Like. Yeah. Can I, is it okay to use? Of course it's okay to use a New Living Translation, but it's like, but are yes. you going to get like rigorous, deep, like, are you going to press the hermeneutics of the text really carefully? <laughs> well, no, you're not going to. And sometimes the way, even the prepositions and how things sound yeah. won't be, it's not, it's not exact, it's thought for thought. So, so it's like, it's good for getting a general understanding, but when you want to really, if you really want to press something, you got to go to the, again, the original language. Well, and here's some practical advice too. If you're reading in any translation and a passage confuses you or you're really meditating on a passage, do yourself a favor and look up that passage in its full context in a bunch of other English translations just to help flesh out your oh. understanding of the dynamic range of those words in the original language. Even if you don't have the ability to go back to the um, original language with, with Bible software, anything like that, or um, keyword study Bibles or anything like that, you can go onto a free program like Bible Gateway or Blue Letter Bible or Bible Hub online and type in your passage and then have it pop up in several different translations. So if you're really trying to study a passage in the English, if you're really trying, if something's confusing you or you want to know more, or you're meditating on it, look it up in a bunch of different ones because that can be really, really helpful. No, that is a top-notch thing to do. Yeah. I do it all the time. It's huge. All because, the time. Because, yeah, there's the dynamic range of a certain word, right? It connotes yeah. and denotes different things. Yeah. So it's like you could have a word, and this happens throughout all of Scripture. It could be anything. Like yeah. even... Um, uh, uh, what is that word, uh, that saying in Hebrews? Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things unseen. Mm -hmm. um, that is translated so differently mm -hmm. in the KGV, in the ESV, in the NIV. You go down the, it's the word confidence is used mm -hmm. uh, in, in some places, right? And sometimes the word um, uh, confidence, right? uh, and con conviction is used instead. Mm -hmm. so, and it's like, well, it's saying, is it the reality and the substance is changed to conviction yeah. into confidence? And you're like, whoa, that's way different than what they suggest very different things so even mm -hmm. so even when you push the text for instance in um you're saying uh getting down to using multiple things right so we know that the actual literal words that let's say the king james would translate as substance reality right the substance of things uh of things hoped for and the reality of things unseen or the evidence of things unseen that would translate to something let's say someone would be like uh 
the substance would be like the confidence of things hoped for. Yeah. The conviction of things unseen. It's like, well, hold on. The real Hebrew words or the real Greek words aren't those, right? So it's like, but they're trying to paint. They're like, okay, well, it's not an actual substance either. Mm -hmm. So they're trying to figure out a way to describe that. So even, even in the literal translations, you don't have the best literal translation because in the Greek or in the Hebrew or in the Aramaic, whatever it is, it connotes it has different implications of what it means. So you have a, a direct meaning, but then it suggests something else as well. And that suggests something else, <clears throat> which just, just doesn't, those suggestions, those implications don't translate over to English. Just the direct meaning does. Yeah. So that's the difficulty. So I think also this is where study Bibles really can help us as well. Right. Um, uh, if you have a good study Bible, you can pop down in the notes and a lot of times they'll tell you about the implications of the text. But a word of warning as well with study notes is that is not to take what the study notes say as gospel. Uh, but it's a really good idea if, if you're using a Bible commentary or if you're using a study Bible to also compare and contrast those notes to other notations from from different authors of commentaries and, and so to give a more well-rounded view. Um, now, though I'm not, um, I'm not uh, translation specific in what I use, like I don't just use the NIV or don't just use the NKJV, there is a word of warning that I would give you is that not all translations are translations. There's some Bibles that are out there that are actually paraphrases and paraphrases are not translations. So a translation of the Bible is generally done by a decently sized group of people. And the reason for that is they they come, they generally come from all different denominational stripes. And the idea is that um, coming together as a group and working on translating the scripture stops this, the translation of the scripture from trying to, to for, for having a pigeonholed view and trying to espouse the personal beliefs or convictions of one person who is not God, right. not the Holy Spirit, right? So a group of people to challenge each other and make sure that the, the translation of the scripture stays honest uh, to the, the original language. Um, so with a paraphrase, not all of them are nefarious, okay? I think there there is one out there that's a little bit more nefarious, but I think like a, a paraphrase, for example, like the message. The message gets a lot of um, tomatoes <coughs> thrown its way, but it's a paraphrase. And, and I know some churches use it as a translation and some people use it as a translation, but they shouldn't. A, a paraphrase is, is, um, is written translated by one person and it's thought for thought it's more devotional uh in its nature it's not really for serious bible study um so just be wary and be mindful of that 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 when you're looking at a translation if you've never heard that translation before or if it seems really out there and really bizarre you should look into how it was written how it was gone about is it by one person is that person qualified to translate scripture uh, was it done by a big group of people who have a lot of credentials to their name? That's that. Those are the ones that you should lean towards more often. And also be wary of translations that are controlled by uh, denominations. I would be a little bit more wary about that as well. Right. So just some things to think about so as I we go. So I shouldn't read only the King James is what you're telling me. 
<laughs> King James is a little bit different. It's not a paraphrase, but yes, I there there are some people who are diehard KJV only. I yeah, am I not. Yeah, definitely not. Not even close. But yes, definitely keep your keep your uh, your translations open. You know, if you're reading the NIV and you love the NIV, that's awesome. But again, you come to an area of scripture, you want to memorize it, you want to get into deeper meaning, check out that passage in a few other translations to help broaden your understanding of what the original was trying to say. Right. Yeah. Perfect. Anything else? No, I, I, what else are we going to say? What I else think, are we going to say? I think we say? already answered it. I think so too. It is yeah. okay to use the New Living Translation. So says 12-year-old yes. Corey who really came to a new level of understanding of yes. God through it. And, and there's good translations to use just to get, yeah. right. if you've never read the Bible, like that's a good one to use. It's a great because one to it's, use. Because it's, it's read in like modern English. It's not yeah. read, right? The King James is, is old English, let's say, right? Because yeah. it's like, yeah. that is How? much, the threshold to, to learn is much more difficult. Yes. Um, so there's different things to learn. So that's important. So it's not, and like we said, even the literal translations, the nuances and the dynamic range of each word is bigger than our literal translations can muster. Yep. So it's not, it's not perfect. It's never going to be one for one. Nope. You're always going to have to dig through the weeds if you really want to press the text hard. And how amazing that God speaks through it anyway and uses it anyway. Sure. Like if, yeah. I'm, I'm glad that he's not a perfectionist in that way, that yeah. we have to be perfect in order for him yeah. to speak to us or use us. There is a danger. And if we say that this translation is the best, we could say this. If you're something like, oh, this is the only translation, ESV. Only, I'm an ESV only guy, okay? <laughs> only with the ESV. Well, there's a danger in me reducing God to this, this alone. Yeah. You're saying God, I think that's a good point you made because it's like God does speak through the different, like through us, right? Through, yeah. Through this Another thing. challenge to that, like, like, like if you were ESV only, well, like other languages don't have the ESV. So do other people groups who only have the Bible written in their language, yes. are they excluded <laughs> from the gospel because they're not reading in the ESV? Yeah. No. You have to learn a different language. No. <laughs> what happened to them speaking in tongues? You have to learn a different language. <laughs> whole new meaning. Yeah, whole Ooh. new meaning. Yeah, it means you have to learn tongues to, to get saved. <laughs> to uh, read the scripture. That's right. No. So, no, so I think it, it, it could be dangerous to say there's a best English translation. It definitely could. Or, I say there, yeah. or there's an only, I should say. There's an only. But yeah, yeah it's, again, it's important to know that yeah, the original language is the inspired language, not the English language. For real. All right. All right, guys, that's it for today. Pop your comments and your questions down below. Until next time, happy reading and happy studying. Thank you so much for watching. We want to keep producing high quality biblical content, but we can't do it without your support. If you feel called to support us, please click the link in the description under donate. Your support really means a lot to us.